So, we are in Joshua chapter 1, having put the intro to Joshua behind us, and uh, I think we're going to finish the chapter tonight, but, you know, I expect to win every fight I enter, and every once in a while we end up with a temporary draw or a delayed defeat, uh, victory. So, uh, let's do this. Let's read through. The first chapter of Joshua. Jen will help us with that. She always starts us off. And uh, then we'll hop in and go line by line, precept upon precept. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. So, Gwen, why don't you start there, and that'll help me arrange some stuff. Read, uh, read like, like you're a woman who's pregnant with a daughter of the living God. Amen. Amen. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' age, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all of these people get ready to cross the Jordan into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert of, to Lebanon and from the great river of the Euphrates all the Hittite country, to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the laws my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, Go through the camp and tell the people, Get your supplies ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. The Lord your God is giving you rest and has granted you this land. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan. But all your fighting men, fully armed, must cross over ahead of your brothers. You are to help your brothers until the Lord gives them rest, as he has done for you, and until you too have taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan towards the sunrise. Then they answered Joshua, Whatever you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey your words, whatever you may command them, will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Amen. There are so many beautiful things about this book. And... Uh, we covered some of the introduction last time. I hope working. I hope that um, you remember a few of the things. Where was the book of Joshua placed in the Bible? It's in the prophets. And uh, 
Why was it placed in the book of the prophets? Warns the soul. Because it warns the soul. One of the things that we did was we looked at Joshua's name. Y'all remember this? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let me one of those evenings, huh? When you see the name Hoshea that he was given, and that Hoshea is a proper noun designating salvation, uh, who changed his name? Moses. Sometimes God changes people's names. In this case, he was chosen as Moses Hakam, his lead disciple. And so Moses nicknamed him. He took Hoshea and changed his name to Yoshua. When it's used in Nehemiah 8.17, it is the exact spelling of the Hebrew name Jesus. The reason that I'm pointing that out as we start out tonight is much of tonight will show discipleship in Joshua's life. And in the Hebrew mindset, Joshua exemplifies discipleship. Uh, Last week I pointed out some of the ways, a few of the ways, in which Jesus modeled this with Peter. He took Peter, uh, one of twelve, and gave him uh, the name Peter. It was uh, as a nickname. And that was a long-lasting tradition among uh, disciples. Uh, Rabbis would take a lead student, give him a nickname that was different than every other student, and then use them as an example. They take that tradition from Joshua. He was one of 12 spies, the only one given a nickname, and he was the one who would succeed Moses and do the things that Moses did. That is how that tradition started, and it lasted all the way from Moses and Joshua into Jesus' time. And do you remember in the Great Commission what we're supposed to go and make among the nations? Disciples. Disciples. So this great tradition goes all the way back in time to at least Moses and Joshua. Uh, Some other things we did last week that we won't uh, recover. We looked at similarities between the book of Revelation and Joshua. We just hit a few of them. Um, Two spies or witnesses were faithful after ten previous had not been. So we sent out uh, twelve spies, and ten came back with a bad report, two came back with a good report, right? This is very similar to the role of the nation of Israel, where... The vast majority was not faithful, but there was a faithful remnant. Well, when Joshua sent out spies, how many does he send out? Two. Two. (laughs) Just like Revelation 11, where Jesus sends two witnesses. In both cases, nobody is spying on anything. It's It's a misnomer. They're actually going to confirm that what God said is true. After all, Joshua's military campaign wouldn't depend upon finding weakness in the enemy's camp, huh? Yeah. Have you ever met walls that are susceptible to, uh, to to voice? I mean, that's not a sound military campaign. I don't think the spies came back and said, we've examined the molecular composition of the walls, and if we yell at them, they'll fall down. In fact, what did the spies come back and report? The land is just as you have said that it is. Okay? Uh, you might remember this Statement, under close examination, the book of Joshua seems to be a precursor to the book of Revelation. Another kind of Yehoshua, as a commander-in-chief, will dispossess the planet Earth of its usurpers. First sending two witnesses, then sending a series of judgments 
of sevens, finally defeating the kings with signs in the sun and the moon while the kings of the earth hide in caves. The point was, is that as we look at Joshua, you'll find it a prototype for the book of Revelation. That was similar, uh, or, or that was additionally true of the book of Exodus as well. Shockingly, if you want to understand the only book of Hebrew prophecy in the Newer Testament, you have to understand the Hebrew Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And most of the time, the reason people have such strange heretical theories or fantastic theories that are not heretical but completely detached from biblical reality <coughs> are because they don't understand the, uh, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, I want to understand the Hebrew Bible, do you? Yes. I want to understand the Hebrew way of life so that we understand from this book the things God intended the original audience and every audience after it. So we're going to pick up in Joshua, the first chapter, first verse. Oh, real quick, let me show you a picture of the land grant. Everything in green here is the royal land grant that Joshua is supposed to go in and dispossess. This was the last picture I showed you last week. What is in red, right there, outlined in red, is what they actually possess today. Israel, much like most Christians, was content and is content to live in the smallest part of our promises. We know that there is so much more, but we have to get off of our apathy and go and get it. We, we, we have to decide to go and fight. So maybe the last statement that I left with you uh, had to do with an attitude that we pick up from the book of Joshua. It's the last thing that I want to remind you of before we... Uh, move into that. The most important thing to pick up from the overview was the attitude of Joshua. He defeats the world. That's Jericho. Leaning on the Lord only. Use no weapons. He saves the Gentile graftins. Rahab. That's next week. He fights for and completes God's promised inheritance to Israel. The allotment of the land. He is the desire of Moses or Moses' prayer fulfilled. He does all of this in one way, trusting in God's word. We're going to cover that tonight. In Joshua 1.8, the prescription for lifelong success in every person's life is Joshua 1.8. He did this through an active, victorious faith that was on the offensive. Most Christians live like prisoners of war, hiding in their homes, hoping to sin less. A good day is a day in which they do not sin. The book of Joshua actually teaches us an entirely different concept. A good day is when you go after the promise of God and end up with dead giants beneath your feet. Amen. A good day is not a day in which you don't sin. A good day is a day in which you accomplish that which you were born to accomplish. Amen. If we could learn to go on the offensive and use Joshua as a roadmap, then we will start to inherit more of the promise that we're supposed to have. More and more and more. Every once in a while, a man comes along that reminds us, like a general of the faith, there's more. And we see them and we admire them. Sometimes people try to hire them. Because the hope is that in association with them, and them getting more and more and more, you won't have to do it. They'll do it for you. But the reality is every person in this room is called to be like Joshua. 
That was the emphasis of our meeting last week. We may have even covered Matthew 16. Okay? Matthew 16, when Jesus formed the church, the gates of hell will not overcome it. You will never see a gate chasing down an army, but you will see armies beating down a gate. A gate is a defensive structure. It's defensive because God intended always for His church to be on the offense. Storming the gates of hell. Taking back from the devil. Never hiding, hoping to not get bit by that devil dog. It was our job to go put down the enemies of God. Not to hide and hope we don't have conflict. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to see the making of Joshua. We're going to see how he was discipled. We're going to see why that's the case. We're going to glean something of the attitude of Joshua. We're going to see how the Lord built him so that we can find out how we can be more like him in the same way we want to be like Jesus. Is that something you want to do? Amen. We're going to go to chapter 1 and verse 1, and you can kill that. Everybody will be trying to read it while I'm talking. Uh, All right, so who wants to read? Man, it's going to be massive. It's a lot to read. You could get tired. You sure you want to read? All right, Rob, you're going to read, and you know what happens when you read. What do I do? I interrupt you all the time. But start in verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. Oh, hold stop. <laughs> After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. Is that an interesting opening for a book? Those were not the first words that Joshua penned. Have you ever wondered when you're reading Deuteronomy how on earth uh, the book of Deuteronomy contains the description of Moses' death? Like, what did he do? Did he come down off the mountain secretly uh, that he died on and God buried him and he write the last eight verses of, uh, of Deuteronomy? Joshua wrote the last eight verses of Deuteronomy. We, Deuteronomy, we know this because the people God entrusted the book to kept a tradition about how they put together the book. And it's been pretty trustworthy over the last uh, 4,000 years or so. In fact... All of the men that have attacked the Bible throughout history, all of the great intellectual minds, there has never been conclusively shown a single factual error in it. I mean, we are talking about millions and hundreds of millions of Bibles distributed around the world, and nobody's ever had that, I got you now moment. But a seventh grader could read the Book of Mormon and find them in a few minutes. I mean, a few minutes. Panes of glass during times there was no glass. Animals that never lived on this continent. No people group described in the Book of Mormon. No people group that is supposed to be in the North American continent has ever been found. Not one city has ever been found that they say existed. But I just led a team in Israel and back where we visited the biblical cities. And you know how you find them? You read your Bible. And it tells you exactly where they are. It's better than Google Maps. (laughs) After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. This is one of those things where the opening of the book points us backwards to Moses for a reason. It is um, to, to remind us that Joshua is the continuation of the five books of Moses. Okay? So 
I think it would be beneficial before we get into Joshua further than after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, to read where the book actually starts, the segue between the two. Let's go to Deuteronomy 34. And Rob, I feel as if I've cheated you. So in Deuteronomy 34, pick up in verse 4. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. Okay. The very first thing that Joshua is supposed to have written in all of the Bible is recording that the Lord had said to Moses, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. One of the reasons that's so important is Abraham is around the year 2000 B.C. These events are taking place much closer to 1500 B.C. That's a long time to keep a promise, isn't it? I mean twice as long as our country is old. Okay, You read it and it's a few pages, but a lot of time has passed. Joshua and Moses before him was a recipient of a promise that preceded both of them. The promise involved three things. Come on, Acts 2. Who's in Acts 2? What three things does the promise involve? A very specific people a very specific place, and a very specific plan. Rob, while you hold your finger there, Sam, you read Genesis 17, 7 through 8. (coughs) Genesis 17, 7 through 8. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now, an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. God makes a promise to Abraham and Abraham's descendants that they would enter into a very specific land. And there's even a hint in it. He says, I'll give it to you and your descendants after you. And we know that Abraham didn't receive it. They have to receive it together in the resurrection. Having said that, this is a three-part issue. God has a plan that involves very specific people and a very specific place. If you don't have the book of Joshua, then God's promise fails. If you don't have the man Joshua, God would have had to raise somebody else up to do it. In fact, uh, who else wants to read? Frank, you take this one. Take Hebrews 11, 32-35. Rob, you just stay right where you're at because we're coming back to it. Hebrews 11, 32-35. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword. 
whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Whose weakness was turned to strength. I've always loved that. Where did Gideon live? In Israel. Where did Barak live? Israel. Where did Samson live? Israel. Where did Jephthah live? Israel. Where did Samuel live? Israel. Where did David live? Israel. You can't have the Hebrews' faith all the fame if you don't have Joshua. If Joshua didn't do his work, then Gideon wouldn't have existed or had a home. If Joshua didn't do his work, there'd be no land for Barak to defend. There'd be no invader for Samson to drive out because he wouldn't have a home for him to invade. Jephthah wouldn't have been able to make his oath before God if Joshua didn't do what he was supposed to do. You couldn't have the greatest messianic figure in the Bible, David, without a Joshua. Joshua begins by writing I am a, um, that God said to Moses, this is the land I promised on oath to who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That promise was restated through three generations, and there was a reason for it. It needed to be very sure in the hearts of the people with whom God was making this covenant. They needed to never forget that their land wouldn't be replaced by another. They wouldn't be replaced by another people. God would never have a plan B. God knew the end from the beginning, and He chose a people, He chose a place, and He revealed a plan. It's interesting to note that Muslims believe they have replaced Jews and Christians. That Mormons believe that they have replaced Jews. That Jehovah's Witness believe they have replaced Jews and are the true Christians. And those are just a few cults. I won't hurt your feelings by getting into the mainline denominations that believe they have replaced Israel and become the spiritual church. But the issue at hand is... If that's true, then Abraham was lied to, Isaac was lied to, Jacob was lied to, and there's no reason to have the book of Joshua, which is the only way you'll ever understand the book of Revelation. So can you draw a conclusion from that? Oh, yeah. The Bible's a lie. The Bible is absolutely not worth reading if God will replace his people, replace his land, or change plans midstream. And yet variations of that idea are taught in churches and seminaries all over the world because they do not understand the Word or understand the power of God. All of these things, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, happened in the land that Joshua gained through victorious faith. What do you think will happen in your life if you gain promises through victorious faith? It'll bless generations to come. It'll, it'll bless people you've never met. It will bless the world at large because that's the God that we serve. The thing that I want you to be sensitive to as we go through this chapter tonight is that Joshua was the product of Moses' discipleship. To better understand that, Frank, were you reading Deuteronomy or you're reading Hebrews? Who had Deuteronomy? Rob. Rob, you had Deuteronomy. You read Deuteronomy. Uh, read 9 through 10. Actually, just let's just read them all. 5 through 10. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Beor, 
but to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days, until the time of weeping and mourning was over. <coughs> now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of Hold, wisdom. hold, hold. Is that odd for, for a man to write about himself? But Micah said it. In Micah 3.8, he said, But as for me, I'm filled with the spirit and power. Amen. Was he arrogant? Or was he filled with the spirit and power? It's only arrogant if it's not true. Okay? I want you to notice from the very beginning why Joshua says he was filled with the spirit and wisdom. Keep going, Rob. Filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. Why was he filled with the spirit of wisdom? There is an inextricable link between Moses and Joshua. It's missed by most people. In fact, most teach things like Moses failed, Moses uh, typifies the law, the law could never inherit the promise, so the law had to stop short, but Joshua, Joshua went in. Well, why does Joshua say he was filled with wisdom? Because of Moses. We make a mistake to segment these things. The truth is, is in Numbers 27, Moses prayed for Joshua. Like, not, not laid his hands on him and prayed for him. He prayed that God would give them a leader who was full of the Spirit who would accomplish this, and God picked Joshua. What's beautiful about that is it's the very man that Moses had also picked. So God approved of his choice. When you do discipleship well, God will approve of it. He, he will do more with it than you ever thought could be done. In fact, the goal of discipleship is that your disciples... Go further than you. That's not an insult to you. Only ignorant small men teach messages like that. It's actually uh, a great accolade for you. We don't need to set Joshua against Moses in 2,000 years of small-minded preaching. What we need to do is look and go, Joshua is the fulfillment of Moses' life. He's the pinnacle of everything that he wanted to achieve. Which, by the way, is how you should view the law in Jesus. Everything the law set out to achieve is achieved in Jesus. He is the very fulfillment, the culmination of, the goal at which the law was always aiming. He's not against it. It's not against him. You would have no Jesus without having the law. In fact, he is the living, breathing, walking law. Amen? Amen. No, uh, go ahead, Rob, I'm sorry. Verse 9. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to Egypt to do in Egypt, the Pharaoh and to all his officials into his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. You know what's so beautiful about that? You hear the reverence of the student for the teacher. <coughs> but the reality is, Moses didn't command the sun to sit still during the day. But it did. Joshua actually did things that Moses never did. But when he thinks of Moses, he thinks he's the greatest man of God that's ever lived. I bet if you could talk to Moses, he would say similar things about Joshua. Because that's the kind of relationship that discipleship is supposed to produce. One that says, 
the things I've learned from you, I've never seen anybody do it like you. And the teacher looking going, you've now surpassed me. You, this is what you're accomplishing is greater than anything that I ever dreamed of accomplishing. Do you know who benefits by that? Every generation of disciples. Amen. Consider what we have degenerated into. If we have a speaker come to the church, it's got to be a speaker from out of town. That way, like a prostitute, he's paid to leave. Because if he stays and he's done a good job, he might get your church, which is why you didn't pick somebody from in your church to teach that week. Because what do you do with them if the people like them? See, it is a faithless society that exonerate or, or elevates, exalts guest speakers over the congregation that you're supposed to be preparing. How could it be that you have 5,000 disciples and not one of them capable of doing what you do? You have to get somebody from another church. It's not that there's nobody out there that would be capable. Number one, you're not investing in them. And number two, you're never going to because you don't want them to take your job. So the further away the guest speaker comes from, the better. Isn't that true? I want to challenge you. Drive down the street when you leave here. Look at who is advertised on the billboards outside churches. Never will you find a billboard that says, Come this Sunday! Somebody from our third row is preaching a message. You don't see that. But you'll see billboard after billboard after billboard that says, Come here, bishop or apostle or whatever it is from some other place here. Why? Well, because it's the opposite of discipleship. It's some kind of strange demagoguery. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go back to Joshua 1.1. It occurred to me that we did not finish that verse, and I don't like to do that. Yes, I'm sorry. Rob, were you going to read that? Oh, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of God, Moses... <coughs> oh, hold there. <laughs> Moses ate. Moshe ate. <laughs> I don't know how to think about the word aid. Uh, I I do believe that Joshua aided Moses. So I guess from that standpoint, it's a good translation. But would you like to hear maybe some other verses that have the same Hebrew word in it? You could deduce perhaps what what this word means. Uh, Can we hand out, I don't know, Law Prophet's writings? Mr. Linton. Exodus 28.35 Mr. Rezora 1 Kings 8.11 Elder Steve Psalm 101 verse 6 We'll take those and get a definition working and then I'll give you Law of Prophets writings New Testament for a working application. Exodus 28.35 Aaron must swear it when he when he ministers. 
The sound of the bells will be heard when he enters the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he will not die. Okay. Uh, anybody want to guess what word in that verse is aid? Minister. Minister. Read it one more time. Aaron must wear it when he ministers. Aaron must wear it when he aids. That doesn't sound good, does it? I couldn't find anywhere else that this word was translated aid. In this case, the very same word, which is meshereth, is um, translated minister. Now, when you minister, it is aiding people. It is a service to people. But what do we call people who minister? Ministers. Ministers. I'm going to suggest to you that in the law, a mashereth is a minister. Let's see what it is in the prophets, Chris. 1 Kings 8, 11. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. And the priests could not perform their aid. That just falls kind of short, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It almost sounds like we're diminishing it. That is, the priests could not perform their sheriff because of the cloud, their service. In other words, the <coughs> priests couldn't perform their ministry. ministry. Let's take it in the writings. Psalm 101.6 My eyes will be on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. The one whose walk is blameless will minister to me. The one whose walk is blameless will aid me. It it, it falls kind of hollow, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. I'm not real sure why we chose this English word, but that's not the word that Joshua wrote. He wrote the word meshereth. It's a participle which means to minister or to be a minister. When you look it up, it's uh, Strong's number... 8334. You're going to see the root there, which is uh, a shin, a resh, and a jet. When it has its prefix on it, it's mesheret. At least that's how a Texan, who was a former Louisianan, would pronounce it. Uh, I'm going to suggest to you that if you were reading this sentence in Hebrew, you might come out with the idea that what Joshua is is not some kind of candy striper or dental tech, but that this would say, Then Adonai said to Yehoshua, the son of Nun, who was Moses' minister. Now why would that matter? It's another reminder at the very beginning of the book, the ministry of Joshua began with the ministry of Moses. This is the minister that Moses produced. But when we read it as Joshua's aid, we're like, oh, this is the dude that carried his bag. (laughs) We have the same kind of demeaning translation regarding Eve. God said that it's not good that a man would be alone in Genesis 2.18. So I will make him a helper. We'll teach on that maybe some other time. But that helper is not somebody to carry your bags, husband. That helper is the essential, cherished, 
other half of your calling. Indispensable in the same way that Joshua is indispensable to the calling of Moses. Because as great as Moses did, he needed another. And as great as Joshua was, he was not independent, he needed another. It turns out you're supposed to work in teams. How about that? I want to give you another challenge since you're examining billboards on the way home. Find me a church that says pastored by and then you have two or three men listed as equals on the same line. Find me one. It's pretty hard to do. Now, you might find one that has a CEO, an executive, a president, a vice president, and they call themselves a team. But it sounds more like a secular board, a hierarchy. In the Bible, men were never independent of others. Who was Moses' teammate? Who did he work with? Aaron. Aaron. Amen. I'm glad that you all knew that because that's where we're going next. Before we do that, I want to give you an, a practical understanding of what a masherit is supposed to do. Okay? So let's take law, prophets, writings in the New Testament. Uh, who wants to read? Spence in the back of the room. And then I'll get to whoever was back here. Um, Spence, you take John 15, 16. Nolan, you take 1 Corinthians 4, 15. And I'm going to slip in a John 14, 12 with you, Abimbola. Glad to have you back. And Daniel, why don't you grab Acts 5, 15? Then who wants the best one? Cody. Cody, we're going to encourage you right into Powerhouse Ministry, brother. This is Revelation 11, 4 through 13. John 15, 16. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. How many of you decided to follow Jesus? (laughs) I have decided. Right? We sang that song every week. None of us actually did it, but we sang it every week. Jesus makes the point to the apostles, you didn't choose me. You didn't come find me. Oh, I was lost and then I found Jesus. No, they didn't. How did they meet Jesus? Matthew was in his tax collector's booth and Jesus walked up. Peter was at his fishing net and Jesus walked up. Nathaniel was sitting under a fig tree doing, I don't know, a nap. And Jesus came to them. Why is he reminding them of that? Well, it turns out that rabbis required people to come to them and apply (coughs) to be their student. And they were tested with questions. And if you determined that that student, that Talmud, had the ability to be like you, then you selected him. But since a rabbi could only take, I don't know, 12 students or so, although there was a rabbi who took 70 at one point, let's just say between 12 and 70, Since you only had that many slots and it was a pretty big nation, you turned away almost everybody that came to you and you selected only the strongest because they would represent your teaching. So it must have been quite an honor when the rabbi of rabbis showed up at your house and said, no, I know you didn't apply. 
But if you come with me, I'll teach you to fish for men. It was a reminder before Jesus died. I chose you because I believe that you can do what I do. What a disservice it is to that king of kings to then treat him as if he does things that none of us can do. The reason he selected you was because he wanted you to do the things that he does. That's the reason you make a disciple, is to not only do what you do, but to take it even further than you could take it. That's the purpose of discipleship. Do you ever get the impression that when churches have Bibleship classes, that that's not really the aim for you to go further than the man teaching them? The aim's more like to make sure you can all tow the party line. I'm telling you, you have to tow. I know a man in a church that was insulted when he was told he needed discipleship. Because to him, it was a term of subjugation that meant you're down there and I'm up here. Once he got a Hebrew understanding of it, we ended up ordaining him shortly thereafter. Okay, let's take our next one. 1 Corinthians. 4.15 Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Yeah, that's not what I'm looking for. That was 1 Corinthians 4.15? 4, 4.15 Give me just a second. Had a few of those today. Um, 1 Corinthians 4.17 For this reason, I am sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, whom is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus with agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. See, a disciple would be an extension of you. To view Moses as a failure and Joshua as, an ex- as a success is to separate the two men, and they're actually extensions of each other. Read that one more time and see if you pick out another nugget in it. For this reason, I am sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, whom is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Way of life, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. It's not possible to enter into discipleship if you do not share each other's lives. How could Timothy remind you of Paul's way of life if he only learned in a classroom? How would he know? One of the things that is awesome about Joshua, and we're going to get to this here in just a minute, is he got to see all the successes and failures of the men who discipled him. And he was benefited by it. We're going to show you that. Okay, let's take our next passage. John 14, verse 12. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will even do greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Jesus Christ either was lying or telling the truth. There's no other possibility. And he said, if you put your trust-grounded obedience in him, you will do even greater things than he did. So how much of the promised land you live in now, soldier Christian? Hmm? When you saw that map of the promised land up there, and you see it, no? 
And you see that tiny little fraction that they're in? You go, man, that's just not right. Well, how much of the promise are you living in? Is it time to raise up a Joshua spirit? I'm not going to sing a corny song about the days of Elijah. I mean, that's been overdone. But maybe we need the days of Joshua. You know, it's sad because a lot of Christians are almost ashamed of the book of Joshua. Like, it's got all of this killing in it. That just doesn't seem like Jesus. That's because you don't understand Jesus. You should listen to Pastor Wade's sermon from Sunday. Christians are not pacifists. We never have been. We don't advance the kingdom through a sword. We're not mean or aggressive people. And... There are some things that are worth fighting for. And when God says it, you do it. Right? Okay. So who had our next one? I did. Acts 5, 15. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on the beds and mats so at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. So how many people did Jesus heal with his shadow? Do you mean to tell me that Jesus didn't do as big of a miracle as Peter did? That there was some miracle that Peter did that Jesus didn't do? Yeah, that's exactly what we mean to tell you. And that's supposed to be commonplace. Peter's ministry went on building on the work of Jesus so that Peter's shadow healed people. You know what else Jesus never did? I mean, unless you're Catholic. And then then he did it all the time. He never prayed over a handkerchief and sent it to somebody and them get healed. Now, if you're Catholic, you've got the whole Shroud of Turin thing, although they kind of play both sides of the fence. They don't actually validate it as the Shroud of Turin unless it does a miracle, and then, you know, it was was Jesus' Shroud. Pretty cowardice. But that's not all that surprising either, is it? Look, the real disciples of Jesus went on to do greater things than Jesus did. So are we real disciples of Jesus? Well, we're getting there. Maybe we need to cross the Jordan. Amen. The Mel Gibson movie? Maybe we need to go pick a fight. (laughs) You know? Uh, Maybe we've been hiding as prisoners of war when we were supposed to be out storming the gates of hell. And it turns out that on the battlefield, that's kind of where all the miracles happen. Maybe we've been too far from the battlefield, thinking that holiness was abstinence. If holiness is abstinence, then you should just lock people in a cave so that they're holy. How'd that work for Adam and Eve? They're the only two people on the planet. If getting alone helped you be closer to God, it didn't work much for them. I don't know why you try it so much. He actually tells you to be in fellowship. That helps you get closer to God. I just need to go get alone with God. When you get alone, you'll be alone with yourself. And that had never worked out well. How about Revelation? Four through thirteen. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. 
If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouth and devours their enemies. Fire comes from where? Their mouth. Has that ever been done? There's no biblical account ever of a prophet going... (laughs) (laughs) This is the fullest expression of the discipleship that Jesus began. There's going to be two people on the earth that can look at somebody and go... (laughs) Read it, Cody. What else did it do? This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them with this, and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. Wow. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. <laughs> yeah. Then they heard a loud voice from the heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. Does that uh, sound like a bunch of candied apple pacifists hiding in their rooms behind their pillows, hoping to not get hurt? No. It doesn't, does it? They're men who go out and do greater works than we've ever seen on the planet. We often say these guys are like Moses and Elijah because Elijah called down fire. Yeah, it didn't shoot out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. Say so they're like Moses because they struck uh, the Nile and, and it bled. Yeah, these guys do it all over the earth wherever they want to. So, oh, wow, man, there's a resurrection like Jesus. Jesus' resurrection was after three days. This is three and a half. The whole earth gives each other gifts when they're dead. Most of the earth gives each other gifts because Jesus is alive. Not, not, not anybody giving gifts because two prophets are dead. I mean, you talk about a global... My point is, look at the result of discipleship at the end of the end of the end. Okay? But what do we do? We see those guys as special in a way that is in a whole other class than us. And we do it with the apostles. And we do it with anybody that is inheriting more of the land than we have. Because it gives us an excuse to hide in our hole and say, you know, we just need more anointing. We need, no, you just need to use what you have. You know, I just got through speaking in a church that was founded in 1995. And in 1995, they were talking about doing the things we're doing now. You know the difference between this church and that church? They're still talking about it. We're actually doing it. That's not an arrogant statement. I've stood and watched those who should so far outpace us because they started before us do nothing except talk. And this is the problem with the church. If we could glean from Joshua the power of discipleship, never eat your young, ever, 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 be a footstool that they can stand on and and go to greatness... 
If we could learn from the book of Joshua the victorious attitude of faith that says, I'm not waiting for something to come out of those gates and get me. I'm kicking down those gates and nothing can stop me. And I'm going to snatch people out of the mouth of the lion and the bear. If we could learn that, well, then the book of Joshua would be like a prophetic book to you. Warning and instructing your soul, which is exactly where God intended it. Now, let me just draw your attention back to something. If the law's purpose is to incline your heart towards God, and the law is the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, five books, and book number six is the first prophetic book in the Bible, and it's a book about victorious action, getting out there and getting it, why do you think he made it first? We sit back and we wait for instruction, instruction, instruction. You don't need very much instruction when you're not doing anything. If you get out and do something, you'll find out that the instruction you have is pretty good. good And when you need more, it shows up. Okay? We have created a situation where people believe their service to God is to sit and soak in teaching. And the only purpose for receiving teaching is that you might take it further than the people who gave it to you. That's the purpose. Okay? So what we want to learn from Joshua as we move forward here is we want to learn how to multiply God's work on earth through discipleship. Is that pretty clear? Yes. And that was from the first verse. Amen. Yeah, how about that? Let's do this. Let's consider what Joshua saw in discipleship in his lifetime. Okay? Uh, I don't know. Let's pick seven of them. That'd be all right? Yes. <laughs> Can I hand you all scripture? Yes. Where should we start? Joyce got her hand up before I even asked. That's awesome, Joyce. Joyce, you take Hebrews eleven twenty four. Larissa, take Exodus. No, let's go the other. Yeah, Exodus four twenty nine through thirty one. <coughs> Whenever you get it. Hebrews eleven twenty four. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses refused the throne in Egypt. Now Joshua didn't get to see him refuse the throne. The ages don't work out right. But you know what Joshua did? He benefited from spending at least a minimum of 40 years with the man who had the chance to rule the world, but instead chose to go with God. Amen. Would that benefit you? Yes. yes. Okay. Uh, who are the next one? Exodus 4, 29. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites. And Aaron told them everything the Lord has said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. <coughs> Joshua spent at least 40 years seeing Aaron and Moses work as a team. And who did the miracles before those people in Exodus 4? Aaron did. See, Moses was not the lone superstar, the alpha male. In fact, 
They were just a part of a team. And they each had a function. Who spoke better? Aaron. Aaron. <laughs> so it makes sense that he spoke more. Who seemed to hear from God like a boss? Moses. So it makes sense that Moses was often giving direction. You know, to say who was in charge, God was in charge. It's a theocracy. They just each had different roles. Okay? Joshua got to see that. You're going to need to remember that because God sets it up exactly the same way in Joshua's life. Okay, let's take our second one. So who wants it? Steve Thomas, take Exodus 2.12. And Paul, take Exodus 32.1. Exodus 2, verse 12. Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Joshua got to spend 40 years with a man who wrote in the Bible his sin. How open do you think Moses was with Joshua then? See, he didn't just learn from what Moses did right. He also got a chance to learn from what Moses did wrong. If you have to kill somebody and cover it up, that's the wrong use of a sword. But Joshua got to see that. Do you think that benefited him? Okay, our next one. Exodus 32.1 When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. How costly was Aaron's decision to acquiesce to the people? See, Aaron gave in to the people, and that meant the Levites had to kill 3,000 of them. Aaron formed a pattern of giving in to the people, and it hurt Israel. Do you know who got to spend time with Aaron and Moses? Joshua. He learned the cost of caving. You know, that's incredible. What is discipleship worth? You think it's only a class? No, this is why you have to share your lives. Joshua benefited from what they got right in the first example and what they got wrong in the second example. Do you know our pastor actually teaches to hide what you get wrong? You need a separation between clergy and laity so that they will respect you. If they get to know you, if they see how it is before you put your makeup on or whatever it is those (laughs) daffodils do, um, they might not respect you. I say it's the opposite. When you write in a book, you said, when you put on Facebook before the whole world, when you get something wrong, that ought to cause people to learn from what you do right and wrong and how to handle it. Amen. 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 Okay, y'all want to take another one? Okay, third one. So uh, where are we at in the room? Who wants it? Timo. Fine, brother. That's uh, Hebrews 11.28. In Sydney, you got to read it like a boss. It'd be number 17 8. Hebrews 11 28. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that the, the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. Moses faced down 
Imperial Egypt, the powerhouse, the superpower of the world. And how did he do it? His plan was to cover people under the blood of a lamb. Do you think that that made it a little easier for Joshua to go against Jericho with nothing? Do you remember the curse that Joshua placed upon anyone who rebuilt Jericho? Firstborn son. If you rebuild this, it'll cost you your what, Nick? Firstborn son. And where do you think he learned that a power that rebels against God's word loses their firstborn son? See, there is no limit to what Joshua learned from these men. And what happens with discipleship is Joshua may not have even known how he knew to pronounce that curse. Certainly the people around him didn't know where he got it from. But us looking back and examining it carefully, we may have an idea. Huh? Oh man, that's beautiful, isn't it? Who had the next one? Number 17-8. The next day Moses entered the tent and saw that Aaron's staff, which represented the tribe of Levi, had not only sprouted, but had budded, blossomed, and produced almonds. Think of what's happened here. We just covered the way in which Aaron had a habit of caving into the people. Well, now there's a rebellion against Aaron, and Joshua was there to see that God caused his staff to be resurrected anyway. Now think about that. If Joshua has a failure in his life, does that mean that he's not chosen? No, he's got the example of Aaron, who had many failures in his life, and Moses, who had many failures in their life. But he was there the day God caused his staff to be resurrected anyway. Do you think that helped him? Yes. Yes. Oh, man. What is discipleship worth? It's worth so much. You can't possibly know how the events of today's discipleship will help you later. It's not all about book knowledge. It might just be how to take a beating (laughs) or an interrogation or or how to deliver or sweet talk your way out of a situation with a cigar. I mean, you never know. Okay? Uh, Let's take another one. Who who wants this? Nick and Regina. Take uh, Exodus 18, 17 through 18. Christy, you take Numbers 12, 1 through 2. Moses' father-in-law replied, What are you doing? What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. You ever get the impression when you're reading the book of Joshua, he's a pretty capable guy? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, he's a boss. He doesn't have a lot of problems in the book of Joshua. He really doesn't. When he loses, he loses because he didn't listen to the Lord. When he wins, he wins because he listened to the Lord. He wins a lot more than he loses, you know. But he was there when Moses, who was the greatest prophet who had ever lived, right, was rebuked by his father-in-law. And Moses listens to his father-in-law. And what's the rebuke based on? I don't care how great you are, you're overworking yourself. You, this is What you're doing is not good. You need to set up a bigger team. You have too much on your shoulders. And Moses listened to him. Joshua got to hear that. He got to hear that, which meant... He might not make the same mistake. Who have the next one? Right here. Numbers 12, 1 and 2. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? 
Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. <coughs> Joshua got to see Aaron make the mistake of listening to Miriam. Miriam was the older sister of Moses. I mean, she's the older sister of Aaron, too. Uh, Moses and Aaron are three years apart. Miriam's older than that. And we know that because Miriam's running down the Nile watching the basket, and she makes the case for the uh, nursing, the wet nurse. Uh, And Aaron got caught up in listening to an older, wiser family member and going against the direction God wanted to go. Nobody in here has ever been put in that position, huh? You You know what's incredible about this? You can't find these mistakes in Joshua's life. Amen. Yeah. Okay. How about this one? Um, Buddy Brasso, take uh, Exodus seventeen four through five, and uh, Mandy. That's fun to say, isn't it? Mandy. 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 Um, Exodus seventeen ten through thirteen. Exodus 17, 4 through 5. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Joshua was there when the people rejected Moses, and he sought the Lord for a solution. He got to see that the people are fickle, but God is not. Do you remember what the solution was in that verse? Take your staff and get ahead of the people. Okay? You never see a time where Joshua is buffaloed by the people. You, you don't find it. You don't find Joshua caving into the people. He got to see Moses do this right. Actually, in Joshua 3, if you think about them about to cross the Jordan, he sends the priest and says... Go on ahead of the people Amen. with the presence of God. I think that is an actual uh, marker of him thinking back to this example and going, wow. I'm going to send the righteous standard ahead. They're going to go ahead and move out, and all the people will be able to follow rightly. Man, what would you learn if you knew that when there's a problem, when things aren't going right, you got to get with God and get ahead of the crowd? Amen. Come on. Amen. Amen. I, I kind of love it. The next one. Exodus 17, 10 through 13. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. There are too many things to count that you could learn from this. But Joshua was fighting. So he's there watching Aaron. How about that? And he sees Aaron holding up Moses' arms. He could have learned a lot from that. Number one, you can't be alone. You've got to work in a team. Uh, number two, any battle can be won when you hold up the standard of God. He might have looked up and said, you know, 
Moses and Aaron went in a group of two, but they're governing in a group of three. It's, it's, it's impossible to learn the number of things that Joshua might have learned from that, but I know this, discipleship let him see it. He didn't fall out of the sky in a vacuum. Okay, how about this? Uh, Paul Rosales, you take Numbers 20, verses 9 through 12. Nick, you mind reading? You take... Uh, <coughs> <laughs> it's the same reference. So, Nick, you hold. We're going to read Numbers 9 through 12 and we'll draw two conclusions from it. Numbers 29 through 12. <clears throat> so Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. You have to to think through this. On Moses' part, he makes the same error that he makes most of the time. He's just a little too self-reliant. He's angry. He's going to do it. Right? Mm. (laughs) It's interesting how anointed, amazing men can be too self-reliant. But it's true. On the other hand, you have an anointed, amazing man. The kind that did miracles. The kind who staff butted. The kind who held up Moses' arms. And what mistake does he continually make? He caved into Moses. There's not even a hint of opposition. And he's there when God says uh, how it's supposed to be done. So in one man, we have somebody who leans on self too much. And in the other, we have one who leans on people too much. And they were both called, anointed, and successful. What could you learn from seeing that? How about that? Okay, uh, Nick, uh, you take Numbers 27, verse 22 through 23. Judah, you take Numbers 16, 47 through 50. Are y'all learning anything? Yes. We haven't got out the first verse yet. This, this chapter's going to get amazing. I didn't mean to start so late. I'm sorry that that happened. 22 verses. Uh, uh, chapter 27, verses 22 and 23. Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and had him stand before Eliezer, the priest, and the whole assembly. Then he laid his hand on him and commissioned him as the Lord instructed through Moses. Joshua got to see Moses raise up a successor. It was him. But he got to see the importance of having somebody who is going to carry the work forward. That's pretty important, don't you think? You know, Moses didn't necessarily get to see that. Moses didn't have somebody who did that for him. But Joshua, he must have remembered it because the elders who outlived him, Israel did well as long as they were around. 
it must be that Joshua helped to make them who they were. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that's what an important step. A successor. Israel didn't have to send out a pastoral search committee and evaluate their uh, resumes. What a testament to all the previous failures before you. If you have to send out a search committee to find a pastor, when the job of the fivefold ministry is to raise up people for their works of service, what an extraordinary testament to the carnality of what is being called church. Okay, who had the next verse? Peace. I did. <laughs> Numbers 16, 47 through 50. So Aaron did as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead, and the plague stopped. But 14,700 people died from the plague, in addition to those who had died because of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting, for the plague had been stopped. Look, these two men displayed some things for Joshua that would benefit him for the rest of his life. In Aaron, he got to see somebody who stood in the gap between the living and the dead and stopped the plague for the benefit of the people. Neither one was all good or all bad. They were just like you, regular people. But they produced a disciple that did things they never could do. Where is your glory going to be? Is it going to be in your accomplishments? Which one of these seven do you want to be associated with? Killing and covering? Overworked? Anger? What do you want to be associated with? How do you know what people will remember if your life is all there is? Of course, if you raise up people who go further than you did, then there will be somebody to say, yeah, he killed and covered, but he also refused the throne of Egypt. Yeah, he, he overworked sometimes and maybe was a bit of a jerk, but he also faced down imperial Egypt, trusting only in his God. There'll be somebody there who continues the story. Is discipleship important? Yes. 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 Before we leave Moses and Aaron, let's notice a few things. Moses was self-reliant at times. Aaron was pushed around by the crowd. It seems that Joshua was neither one. Disciples should inherit the strengths and eliminate the weaknesses of their teachers. Moses and Aaron worked in a team. So did Joshua. Uh, Cassidy, read Numbers 27, 18 through 23. We've, we touched it a minute ago, but I don't think people caught it. Working in a team. The book of Joshua is called the book of Joshua, but you would have no Joshua if he didn't have this team member. Numbers 27, 18 through 23. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of God, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Have him stand before Eleazar the priest and the entire assembly and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority so the whole Israelite community will obey him. He is to stand before Eleazar the priest who will obtain decisions for him by inquiring of the Urim before the Lord. Hold there just a second. We're going to finish, so keep your finger on it, cats. Where does Joshua get his decisions from? Eleazar would be the eyes of the operation. 
Joshua would be the feet of the operation. Now, where did he get an idea that two men might have to work together like that? Do you think maybe Moses said, I can't speak, and Aaron could? Do you think maybe Moses could hear from God, and Aaron struggled not to be swayed by the people? See, Joshua knew that he needed to work with someone, and Moses knew it too. So he says, Eleazar will obtain decisions from the Lord for you. Right? Does that mean he can't hear from God? No, it means there's somebody else there to help him. An equal partner. That's interesting, isn't it? Lest you think that Joshua was leading alone. Who did Eleazar work for? Did he work for Joshua? I've been trying to kick this alpha male thing now for 24 years. Listen to me. I am not independent of the leaders here. And just because I have a certain function does not mean that I am not equally dependent upon these men. That is a very, very shallow view. Okay? If you do not have Eleazar, then Joshua won't know who to fight. Do you, you, you get me here? It just so happens that we call the tip of the spear the whole spear sometimes. Right? Now, nobody means this ugly. I mean, I get that. It's a testament to the extent to which wrong thinking is ingrained in us. We have to find a single man in charge because that's the only way we've ever seen it done. In the Bible, there is never a single man in charge. See, the priest does not answer to Joshua. He answers to God. And Joshua needs that priest or he can't do his job and he answers to God. Do you see how that works? You would do very well to start to notice those kind of things in the Bible because every church you go to still has a senior pastor and associate pastors. These men are not my associate pastors. I am not in charge. We are three equals who need each other like Joshua and Eleazar needed each other. And all of us have submitted ourselves to the board of elders. See, that is ministering in a team. Amen? It's useful. How about this? Aaron raised up a physical son, Eleazar. He actually had Nadab and Abihu. They they must have gotten drunk in the temple. They did something they shouldn't have done. And uh, the Bible calls it strange fire. And... uh, Uh, You would have to surmise what it was. Then he has Eleazar and Ithamar, his two remaining sons. Eleazar is the high priest who works with Joshua, right? So Aaron raised up a physical son who was going to carry on the work. Moses had physical sons. He had Gershom. I mean, he had physical sons. But he raised up a spiritual son to do his work. Do you know what that tells you? We're supposed to do both. We are supposed to raise up physical and spiritual successors. Judah belongs to me physically. Many of the disciples in this room do not belong here physically, but are spiritual sons. We're supposed to do both. Beware of ministries that are family dynasties. It's a problem. It's a problem. Why did Moses not choose his own sons to be successors? Because God didn't. Seems his gift was hearing from God. Hey, let's get back to Joshua. Uh, who was reading in it? Somebody help me. Who, who wants to read Joshua? 
Who, who said I'll read? Get it, get it, Abimbola. Just go in Joshua 1, 1 through 1, 3. <laughs> We're making progress. We're starting to pick up the pace. We did an hour on one verse, and now we got two verses in the last few minutes. Watch what happens here. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses 8, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, and from the great river to the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life, as I was with Moses. We're going to hold here for a minute. In Joshua 1 and 2, he says the land that he's going to give the people. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them. It turns out that I made a small mistake last week. I said there were five times that God said he was going to give this land in the first chapter. I discovered two more. There are seven. In Joshua 1 and 2, which we just read, I'm going to give to the people. Somebody read Joshua 1 3. Just read it out. I will, I will give you every place where you set your foot. Did he say give? Yeah. Yes. I will give it to you. How about 1-6? Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. To give them. You hear it again? That's the third time. One eleven. So to put slave masters over them, to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Uh, my friend, are you in Joshua 1.11? No. That's what happens when you're still in Exodus, because you're listening. I was wondering how we were building Python and Ramses after we left. All right, Joshua 1.11 this time. Go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now you will cross the Jordan, here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. Possession of the land the Lord is giving you, right? One, two, three, that's four. How about verse 13? Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. The Lord your God is giving you rest and has granted you this land. He's giving you rest and granting the land. That was verse 13. How about verse 15? Until the Lord gives them rest, as he has done for you, and until they too have taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. It turns out that 1 is Joshua 1-2. 2 Two is Joshua 1-3. 3 is Joshua 1-6. 4 is Joshua 1-11. 5 is Joshua 1-13. 6 and 7 are found in Joshua 1-15. Giving them rest and giving them the land. Now, one of the things that's kind of neat about that is if God's giving it to them, we can call that grace, right? Isn't grace when you are given something? And he finishes the chapter by telling them to take it. There's always been a tension between uh, saved by grace through faith, not that any man should boast, and... I will show you my faith by what I did. If you believe God is giving it to you, then what do you do? Take it. You go and take it. Amen. Okay? So many doctrinal issues can be settled this way. We just need to start at the right end of the book. 
In Joshua 1, 3, read just verse 3 for me, Ben. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised <coughs> Moses. <coughs> every place where you set your foot. This begins a series of seven promises. You ready for them? Yes. Seven promises in the first chapter. Promise number one. It's Joshua 1, 3 through 4. Every place that you tread upon will be yours. From the Mediterranean to the Euphrates to the wilderness of Lebanon, you, you know the boundaries. So step one is every place you put your foot. Number two comes from Joshua 1.5. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Come on, is that a pretty amazing promise? Yes. Promise three. <laughs> I love this one. It's verse five. As I was with Moses, so I shall be with you. Given what you know now, does that take on a new meaning? Yes. Yeah. He got to see the way in which God was with Moses for 40 plus years. Yeah. As I was with Moses, so shall I be with you. He saw Moses defeat kingdoms. And that's exactly what he was called to do, was defeat kingdoms. How important is that promise. Mm -hmm. Also in verse 5, in your Bible it says, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. In the Hebrew, uh, we have two words at play. I'm going to put them on the screen to save time here. <laughs> the first one. In the Hebrew, the order is actually reversed. It's more like fors uh, forsake you and then uh, leave you. The way that you can understand that, I'll make that bigger so y'all can read it, is the first word that shows up in the Hebrew text that we translate leave is rafa. It's a verb meaning to become slack, to relax, to cease, to desist, to become discouraged, to become disheartened, to become weak, to become feeble, to let it drop, to leave alone, to let go. God is literally saying, I'm not going to fail you. I, I won't back off. I won't uh, relax. I won't cease. The way that the Greek translates this is neglect. So when you read the Septuagint, he says, I will never neglect you. The second word in Hebrew is azab. This is the one that should have been translated leave. I, I don't know why our Bibles do what they do here. Uh, and it means to abandon, which is exactly what the Greek uh, translation says. The Greek translation says, I will not neglect you and I will not abandon you. That, that makes a little more sense to me than leave and forsake. It's not that those words are inadequate, it's that we tend to just kind of gloss over them. It's become a phrase in our language that we think is redundant, leave and forsake being the same thing. It's two separate promises. He's saying, I'm going to be enough for you. There'll never be a time I neglect you. And I will never never abandon you. Yeah. That's pretty special, huh? Amen. Help you with these over here. 
So those seven promises. Number four was, I will not fail you. In your Bible, it comes up leave. It's really the word rafa, which means to neglect. And I will not forsake you, which of course is the word azab, and it means to abandon. The sixth promise, you will lead this people to inherit the land. That's Joshua 1.6. You know, that's interesting because his predecessor didn't get to do that. He, he led them to the land, but they didn't get to inherit it. And Joshua takes them to actually inherit it. He divides the, the entire land up before them. Number seven from Joshua 1.9. The Lord your God, this is Yahweh, your Elohim, will be with you wherever. Say wherever. 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 Joshua would never go anywhere in this land that God was not with him in a very personal way. That's, that's an incredible promise. Yes. Now, one of the reasons that I went through those seven promises with you is because of what happens next in our verses. Read Joshua 1.6. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead this people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead this people to inherit the land I promised their forefathers I would give them. Next verse is be very strong and courageous. Given those seven promises, how strong and courageous would you be? Be careful how you answer it. Are you sure you don't have those seven promises? Did not Jesus say nearly the same thing in Matthew 28? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Right after he told them to go into all of the earth. But the point was, he had reason for strength and confidence. I don't know anybody that that explains this better than a guy named Eric Ludy, and I'm going to play that for you real quick. I think I'm going to play it for you. We'll see. You're going to want to turn that ball. No? Okay. Don't don't worry about it. Not playing there? Really sorry. You're not going to hear Eric Ludy play that. Um, I have no idea why that's not working. I know a way to do it, though. <coughs> it's not up there still? It's disconnected. Hallelujah, glory to the Holy of Holies. All right, let's try this. Not there? It's something. It's a YouTube commercial. It's a commercial. I can't tell whether that's working. I need your help. Ah, there we go.
I'm not sure why. Um, let's do this. We're having one of those technical evenings. I do not want to rush through the rest of the chapter. Um, what we have ahead of us is God's prescription for success. What we have ahead of us are the Transjordan tribes. And I found something so extraordinary about the way that they're described that it uh, gets me more excited than that video that we played one-third of does. Um, next week, when we come back, we will pick up there. And uh, if you didn't take anything else away from this week, discipleship is a multiplier. There is an attitude that you are supposed to have that is offensive. We are supposed to be kicking down the gates of hell, not waiting to see if we can maybe just try to live without sin. Amen. We are supposed to be defeating the powers of the enemy. What we're going to find out is that it's a certain kind of man that went in and took that land. And there's a reason that the old guys had to die off first. Okay? My strongest desire for this group is that you pick up an inspiration that says, if our leaders can do it, then we can do it and go further. As opposed to just trying to hire a champion for yourself to do what you've decided you're not going to do. Okay? We want our lives, our doctrine, and our teaching to inspire you to go further, not to relax in our accomplishments. Now, I'm not going to make it easy for you to go further, because I'm still running my race. I'm not going to slow down so you can catch up. Amen. I'm just going to give you everything I have and believe you can outrun me. Amen? Amen. Um, are you all starting to get something from the book? Yes. 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 Really sorry about the other difficulties. What I can tell you is we're in a time of warfare and I intend to win. Amen. Yes. So I'm not going to let it affect me. Don't you let it affect you. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Amen.